everybody. Welcome to In the Key of D, using digital to transform your business. It's a show that explores why digital matters and how it helps entrepreneurs, business leaders, and digital and marketing professionals make their businesses better. I'm your host, Kathy Hollenhorst, President and CEO of Creatus, and joining me is my co-host, Gino Giovanelli, who is a leading digital marketing expert and an award-winning professor at the University of St. Thomas. In the Key of D is proudly sponsored by Creatus, the go-to digital marketing resourcing firm that helps companies across the Twin Cities get more work done. Creatus does that through a unique combination of solutions, including on-site staffing and outsourced project work in the Creatus studio. Well, welcome everyone to today's episode, which is going to be an amazing conversation with a very talented CMO and executive. We'll explore what a CMO needs to be doing to be successful today, talk about the challenges of attracting and engaging great talent, and how digital has evolved to make all of that easier. Well, hopefully anyway. Joining us today to do all that is Kim Martinez, who is the first ever Chief Marketing Officer and Chief Communications Officer for the University of St. Thomas. Since joining St. Thomas in 2016, Kim and her team have successfully raised the profile and visibility of the St. Thomas brand and are orchestrating the digital transformation of all of the university's marketing and communication efforts. Prior to joining St. Thomas, Kim spent nearly 20 years in general management and marketing with General Mills. Kim served as one of only 40 women officers globally when she was at General Mills, which, by the way, employs more than 30,000 people, which certainly speaks to her amazing abilities and intelligence. Kim has extensive experience in developing brands and products, as well as all things digital, and also managing P&Ls for large businesses and new product units, both domestically and in Latin America, and these have ranged in size from 500 million to 1.2 billion. And Kim has an undergraduate degree in international relations and economics. She received an MBA from the Kellogg School at Northwestern University and is conversationally fluent in Spanish, having lived and worked abroad both in Madrid, Spain, and Mexico City. Well, Gino, I cannot wait to get started with our conversation with Kim, but I do have a request that we do it in English, not Spanish, because Pretty much the only thing I can do is order a beer in Spanish. Oh my gosh, so funny that you say that because I always kid around that my, my only two words I know in Spanish are cervezas and baños. So yes, <laughs> That's why we get along. I, I'm, in, I'm in favor of this all being in English. Uh, hopefully Kim agrees. Um, but listen, we're super excited uh, for this session with Kim today. Uh, let's just get right into this thing. Welcome to the podcast, Kim. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. And I do think cerveza and baño are very important words to know. So you you started in the right spot. I love that. Well, Kim, let's get started. So tell us more about your background, uh, your days in packaged goods with General Mills and other roles in various global regions to the work you are doing now at the University of St. Thomas. Tell us more. Sure. Um, well, I was a Navy kid. My dad, we moved around a lot when I was little, but I, we landed in Missouri, which I realized doesn't have any naval bases, but that is where I spent the bulk of my growing up. Went to the East Coast um, for college, as you mentioned. I went to uh, Mount Holyoke, a proud women's college graduate. From there, I was in New York City working in, um, at MetLife Insurance Company, and it was there I started in marketing, and I've loved marketing my entire career, and I realized that Um, At that point in time, marketing was not driving the bus in a financial services company. So I realized I wanted to be um, with a group and an organization 
that would um, that would be really strong on the marketing side. In some respects, I felt like I was teaching more than I was learning. And I mm-hmm. thought at 26, that wasn't where I wanted to be. So I, I really took a hard look at consumer packaged goods, really believing that um, the training that I got there would be important. And to do that, I needed an MBA. So as you said, I went back to Kellogg to get my MBA and then was recruited to General Mills and had a nearly 20-year career at General Mills. I love that company. Mm-hmm. I learned so much. Um, they were, I, I again, I had the opportunity to live internationally and to do all sorts of things. That company really believes in challenging you. And of course, marketing is what they're known for. So I just felt like it was a really terrific, um, really terrific place to learn and grow. And I met really wonderful people there. I met my husband there. Oh. So I have a lot to be grateful for, for the company. <laughs> but um, after 20 years, it became to be thinking about, you know, what to do next. And um, I started thinking that I wanted to go look for an organization that um, was wanting to transform itself by putting the consumer at the center of what it did, believing that a transformation in the marketing space would actually really help drive performance, never really dreaming that higher ed was going to be where I would find that position. Um, and when I started to look, St. Thomas posted its first ever CMO job, and I got the opportunity to build a marketing and communications organization from scratch. And I was very energized but not only the opportunity, but also the chance to work with um, Dr. Julie Sullivan. Um, and so I came to St. Thomas a little over four years ago, and I'm still there and loving it. So that's how I came to be in my current job. Wow. That's, uh, that's quite the career, Kim. And I, I, I'm sure you've got uh, more challenges ahead of you as you continue to do great things. Uh, question for you. How, at what point in the career did digital start kicking in? And was it even called digital? <laughs> you know, I was... <laughs> I guess it really depends on how you define digital. Right. I started to think about this and I was, if we go way back, um, you know, especially working in career pack, uh, you know, consumer packaged goods, it, the, if you think about couponing, you know, and the fact that, you know, uh, when you would go and you would check out in the early days of what we used to call Catalina, I don't know if they still call oh, it yeah. that, yeah, where, yeah. you know, if you, you bought a box of Frosted Flakes, it would serve up a dollar off Cheerios. You know, so in some respects, I started, that might have been the early days of retargeting, if you want to think about it, you know, oh, and digitally, yeah. you, you could get them kind of like right there. So, um, you know, would obviously have done a lot of that um, in my in my early career websites also started to come into play. I remember in the early 2000s, we were building the Cheerios website, um, you know, for the first time. And it was funny when we started building websites, because um, you know, and Cheerios is a good example. You know, it's it's a brand that's known for nurturing. It's a brand that um, really needs to engage parents. And so we started thinking about what are all the different things we could do for parents on our website. So we blew out this website that had all these parenting guides and um, bloggers of moms of twins and like all sorts of stuff. Kind of subscribing to that. If you build it, they will come. Yeah. Notion of the website, right? And not really. Thinking about it from, uh, well, but what do consumers expect from your website? What kind of information do they expect you to be expert in? And that's what they're going to come to your site to see. So I would argue that in the early days, we were overbuilding as we were trying to appeal to the, we were thinking about the consumer and what they were interested in and not really thinking about, but is our brand an expert at that? Um, But then you fast forward then into the, you know, after 2010, social media. Mm-hmm. was kind of like the next big thing. And when I was, I was on the fruit snacks and the, and the salty snacks businesses, which I really, which is really where I really came face to face on the social side and really understood the power of what this could do. Chex Mix was one of the brands that I worked on. And um, I think that brand really taught me 
just again, how much consumers uh, almost think about brands as people and, you know, what they would post about checks mix and what they would, you know, do like, you know, I'm spending Friday night with my best friend checks mix, you know, putting, <laughs> you know, uh, pictures up online and just sort of then what does, what was our opportunity as a brand to be able to engage with people in that social space? Um, the same with um, our fruit snacks brands. We had different uh, channels for our our different brands. Like Gushers actually was one of our biggest channels. And of course, you had to be really careful what you um, <laughs> reposted on the Gushers channel because it was not always rated PG. Um, but there were a lot of people that actually, um, it, you know, nonetheless had a lot of passion and a lot of interaction with that fruit roll up you know, was one of the things where we started going into spaces to try and figure out how might we go viral. I know that's one of the the goals. You're always like, how do I get something to go viral? And so one of the ways that we tried to do that was the one unique thing about the fruit roll-up product is that you can actually make stuff with it. Um, So it's not only something that you eat, but it's also something that you can play with. And um, so we, Macklemore, as an example, was coming to the state fair, uh, to perform. Uh-huh. And so we made like a hat, like one of his famous hats out of a uh, fruit roll up as well as a shirt. And we had it delivered backstage. Um, and then he talked about it during the concert and people were filming and that went viral. And, um, there were a lot of expletives in that one too. So <laughs> it was also one of those. You have to be careful. I, I just forward that onto my team. <laughs> yes. And was flagged by security as perhaps not the most appropriate video to be um, passing around. But it was real, right? It was real. We were paying attention to culture. We we were watching for opportunities. And the reason why we had uh, circled in on Macklemore was that um, he had said how much he liked our product. So it wasn't kind of an out of the blue kind of thing, trying to be involved um, in the conversation. Um, and then coming full circle to St. Thomas, it's been interesting because there's a lot of marketing principles that translate across industries. Um, but one of the biggest differences for me between CPG and higher ed um, has just been the um, the length of the consumer acquisition funnel and mm. how much more time people spend in that funnel. Obviously, making a decision that is such high cost as and high impact as you know where you're going to purchase your education. Um, and so that's we've spent a lot of time thinking about that and how can you use digital um, tools. Uh, to help make sure that the right messages are going to the right people at the right time. And how do you help guide people through um, the funnel? Um, you know, on the graduate side, the social platform that has been most impactful for us is LinkedIn. You know, that wasn't a platform I was using at General Mills. Um, and then, Gino, you well know, because we utilized you as a big expert in the beginning, is how do you undertake a website redesign? Oh, right. right. Um, you know, we we uh, we are in the process of redesigning the entire St. Thomas site, which is more than 20,000 pages. Wow. Um, and it was a big undertaking. And so how do you go about doing that, which was um, not something that any of us had directly led before. So. Right. Lots of different um, interactions with digital in that. When I think packaged goods, you know, it's the brand building side, direct to consumer as you build brand, but also there's B2B or working through the channels as well. So did digital play in, in both objectives that you had? Yeah. There? Yeah. And the nomenclature we use at General Mills is we use the consumer to refer to the end consumer. So that okay. is the person that's actually in the store buying your product. And then we use customer uh, to talk about the channel. So we never really thought about it as B2B per se. It's the consumer strategies and the customer strategies. And our, in our case, our customers are very also interested in the consumer. So 
Um, so we would, and depending on the digital platforms that our customers had, um, we would actually obviously really want to be paying attention to what they wanted to use, whether they had any proprietary tools or practices um, that then we could use. And, and of course, all customers want something customized yeah. um, and they don't just want the same thing because they want unique experiences in their stores so that they can bring people in. So, um, and that was what does the wonderful thing that digital can can do that. You can customize in a fairly cost-effective way in a way that you can't, like if you're trying to run like a different TV campaign, you know, for different people, it just gets much less efficient. So digital is terrific for that. I would assume you still did large traditional TV broadcast type of investments. Did you replace some of that spend with digital or did digital become additive? Maybe comment on what that looked like as that transition was happening. Yeah, no, we definitely, I mean, it's, I mean, even at St. Thomas, actually, we, um, we invest in television and, you know, when you look at the cost per million of those versus some of the other, it's still a very, very effective way. At least today it is. Now I'm sure that's going to be rapidly changing and you have to keep looking at that to reach a large audience for in a, in a, in a very cost effective way. So we would definitely um, be looking at both, um, but obviously TV can't get customized and targeted as, as some of the, the ways that digital can get in there with very specific, very customized messaging. So we would, we would want to make sure always in our, in our plans that um, and we would actually think about it in like a 70-20-10, at least we tried. That was our ambition. We didn't always get there, but we would think about it like that where 70% of your marketing spend is going to go against your tried and true, the things that you absolutely know um, is going to be working. 20% is maybe something that's a little bit more up and coming. You've maybe seen some progress from some of the experiments that you've made enough to actually want to invest a little bit more in it. And then 10% was for something pretty experimental, uh, just so that, again, it was it, it incented you to continue to dip your toe into some of these other places. Um, and not just constantly rely on what had worked in the past, knowing that the world is changing and that if you're not constantly experimenting, you're going to be left behind and you're not going to know how to leverage some of these new vehicles. So it was always hard to do that because, of course, with budget pressures, you know, sometimes it was like, oh, you wanted to not spend on the experimental. You needed to spend it on the bread and butter because you had a certain volume that you were needing to hit. But at least it, um, there was a mentality to that that reminded you of the importance of experimenting uh, so that you wouldn't miss out on if something came down the pike that you could really leverage. I, I think those ratios are super helpful when it, when it comes to those channels and, and making sure that you're balanced, if you will, and, and, and tried and true versus the experiment stuff. Let's, let's slice it a slightly different way. Kim, can you talk a little bit about how do you keep the marketing teams uh, hyper-targeted and very nimble at a campaign level, uh, yet holistic at a brand level? So it's just kind of a different way to slice it. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it's really important when you think about the difference between you know the brand and the and the campaign mm -hmm. that it's you've got to be super clear about what the brand stands for and what it will do and what it won't do. And if you haven't had that conversation around guardrails, if you will, um, it's going to be really hard to kind of like manage that. So the brand, you know, should always have some sort of um, some sort of uh, ideally it's written down something. You know, we used to call it brand architectures at, um, at at General Mills. We have a similar document, you know, at St. Thomas. Just some way of uh, having everyone who's working on the brand understanding kind of like what are the guiding principles of these of these brands, so that you know. 
Um, I also think it's really important to make sure that it's clear to everybody that remarkable is kind of what you're striving for when it comes to marketing. And I give full credit to the former, um, actually first ever CMO at General Mills, an amazing marketer by the name of um, Mark Addix, who oh, yeah. I know yeah. also is an adjunct professor at the Open <laughs> to have you guys like uh, make sure that you're taking advantage of his considerable talent. But he would use to, he always was talking about um, remarkable marketing. And, you know, if you unpack that word, it's worthy of remark and how important it is to make sure that whatever you're doing is worthy of remark. Because if you're just vanilla, nobody's going to do anything kind of like with that. Now, I am definitely not of the camp that all PR is good PR. I mean, crappy PR is crappy PR. <laughs> you don't want that. You'd obviously prefer positive PR. But um, this notion though, of being, um, willing to go a little bit more out there um, in order to be breakthrough, um, which actually ladders to another um, another lesson I feel like I learned um, from Mills that I've taken over to St. Thomas's. You know, when we used to develop products, like let's say we're developing a snack product and we want, and for kids. And so we would go to moms and we'd say, you know, what's kind of, what is the perfect snack product for your child? And they would name off things like low calorie, low salt, low sugar, high fiber, high protein, <laughs> like all of these things. All the things and I that, go to the developer. All the things that children just <laughs> yeah, love. Yeah. They love their fiber right, and low exactly. sugar, right? Yeah, what about <laughs> tastes good? Yeah. You know where I'm going with this because the developer would say, I can do that, but it's not going to taste good. Nobody's going to want to eat it. Right. And, you know, at the end of the day, nutrition isn't nutrition unless it's consumed. I mean, yeah. you could have the perfect snack on a plate, but if nobody's putting it in their body, right. it doesn't matter. I think marketing is very similar. Marketing mm. isn't marketing unless it's consumed. You can have the perfect in your mind billboard or whatever it is, digital ad that has everything that you want the consumer to know. But if the consumer doesn't notice it, if they don't consume it, it doesn't matter that it has everything in there. So I think it's important for marketing teams to know that there is an expectation that, you know, you, you're remarkable is important and you can't just be bland, although you kind of have to do it in a, I mean, again, that's why knowing the guardrails of what the brand can and can't do um, are really important. Um, and then the third thing I think I would say is always starting with the consumer. And perhaps I should have started with that one, but <laughs> the consumer has to be at the center of, you know, kind of what you're thinking about, you know, whether it's from the campaign or from the brand, it always needs to come. You, you, there always has to be a consumer reason for being why you're doing what you're doing. And ideally you've done enough, you know, kind of from an insight perspective that you, you do really understand what these consumers are thinking. And so therefore you can build messaging, campaign messaging, um, that ladders to them. But those things, I think, are really important for teams uh, to be able to stay cohesive um, at both the brand and the campaign level. Awesome. Kim, can, going back to the, you said the phrase guiding principles of the brand. What, For example, at St. Thomas, what, what would be examples of that? Yeah. I mean, it's just knowing what, um, what St. Thomas will and won't do. Like, so an interesting conversation that we get into on, at St. Thomas on that, uh, on that uh, mm -hmm. subject is, um, church humor. What is our what is our point of view oh, on church humor? Got it. You know, is that appropriate or not appropriate? You know, for St. Thomas to be doing. And I remember the first time I had to think about that. We were looking at a summer. It was a digital campaign that we were doing, paid um, digital campaign, um, talking about fifty percent off classes. You know, for summer we were doing a special kind of like thing. And we had run some digital ads where it basically just said 50% off summer classes at St. Thomas. And 
the reaction that we were getting wasn't very good. Um, it was lower than the higher ed industry norm um, in terms. And so I said, you know what? Um, it's nice that we're telling everybody what we want them to know, but they're not finding it very energizing. And so our head creative um, uh, came up with the brilliant headline of blessed are the nerdy. And he said, what if we have blessed are the nerdy? And that's kind of the billboard that we're leading with in the digital space. And then when you click on it, you find out more about the 50% off. Um, And I remember when he first talked to me about um, that headline and I thought, well, that's church humor. And is that over the line or not over the line for St. Thomas, you know, in terms of, is that something we, we should or shouldn't do? So we, um, we did do some um, quick groups um, and get it, got some actual consumer feedback on that one, just because that wasn't one that I was comfortable making my own call on. And what we heard was that people, um, people with really strong Catholic faith liked it because they felt that there was a nod to Catholic faith. We also heard that people who weren't Catholic, we have a lot of, um, we also have people at St. Thomas that aren't Catholic, liked it as well, that it didn't take the Catholic faith too seriously. And so we decided that we, and in this particular campaign that we were doing, it was a small experiment with not a ton of exposure. So again, I think I might've thought differently if I was putting it on a big TV campaign right. with millions of eyeballs, but it was a very targeted digital campaign. Let's see how, it, let's see how it does. And we put it out there and we got five times the reaction to that ad than wow. we did um, kind of the 50% off summer classes, even though essentially that we were still delivering kind of like that same sort of thing. So. Um, that's kind of what I mean by guardrails. And I no, and, and I think it's those guiding principles are so important, especially in digital marketing, where it's so easy for someone yeah. to do a, a social post or send some, a message yeah. in an email. I mean, the good news is you can get messages out fast. Sometimes the bad news is you can get messages out fast. And if you if you don't yeah. have those guiding principles to make sure everybody's uh, uh, in agreement on what's OK and what's not OK, yeah. it's super important. And that's how you you ensure the agileness and the nimbleness mm-hmm. and the folks that are really ah, on the ground yep. that are driving some of these things have because you're totally right. You know, they sometimes you know the moment is there. You don't have 24 hours to try and get approval. You know, kind of right. like on certain things. So if you have had these conversations in advance, you can move quicker. Yeah. The beauty of digital too is it is so adaptive. So it, if something isn't working, it is much easier to remove it or change it, which probably was harder back in your packaged goods day when when more than 70% were on traditional TV broadcast with a big production budget. So mm-hmm. maybe speak to kind of things you saw back in your the early packaged goods days with General Mills coming forward. What are you what are some things you're not doing now or what has continued as you've moved into your new space? So certainly you can pull things down um, when it, it, much easier on the digital side than you can in kind of some other mediums. But even there, you have to be really careful because if people have seen it and yeah. then they uh, then you get a lot of, you can get a lot of criticism for why you pulled something down. Um, so um, so yes, you can be nimble and you can make changes. But this this whole notion of um, fighting against you know I think they call it the cancel culture, like where you just sort of take it out and pretend like that that never existed. How do you use that moment maybe to educate, um, uh, you know, um, in certain spaces? So, um, you know, it was interesting, actually, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, just passed away, as you guys know. And uh, we had um, we had a, a Rosh Hashanah post that was about ready to go live. And we waited until sunset because we thought that that was the most appropriate mm. time. Uh, for that message to go out. And no sooner did we put that ad, the, not the ad, sorry, the message of support and solidarity for our Jewish 
um, the Jewish community and this very important holiday. Not no sooner did that go up than within like five minutes, RBG died, oh. and oh of course gosh. the social space was completely talking about something else. So our social team pulled that down um, because they didn't want to look disrespectful, you know, kind of like to what was happening. Um, but then, of course, there were all sorts of questions about, well, wait a minute, you never said anything about Rosh Hashanah. Why did you pull that down? Like, you know, the, right. it created kind of like a whole different conversation. So you just have to be really careful, um, you know, um, with with some of that and just explaining, I think, you know, why you're doing what you're doing. I think, you know, the Gap sweatshirt we saw this week that had the blue on one side and the red on the other, and it was supposed to be talking about election unity, and they had to pull that right down because, they said, sorry, it's too soon, you know, for mm. for the country right now. I think that brands that own that and actually, you know, talk about like, sorry, there was a misstep. I think um, it, it's important um, because, again, I think that it's you, you can be nimble and you can move, but you don't want to try and look like you're sweeping things under the rug. Um, and I think that's what's different today. I think that maybe, I don't know, five years ago, 10 years, you weren't you weren't necessarily expected to explain yourself. Um, in the way that um, we do now with the transparency that we have now. But I think maybe part of that is just because, you know, again, consumers are expecting a dialogue. They're expecting brands to do certain things and they expect more of you, um, I think, now than maybe they did before. And the, the stakes are higher. You know, a bit ago, I'm going to pivot around teams and your managing of teams. And I love what you said. You align with one of our other guests who were talking about the trust is so important with your team. You said give them that brand framework, those uh, guardrails, and then. Uh, let them go because things are moving so fast. So as you yeah. manage your team, whether it be digital or in your general team, you know, what are, um, what comes to mind as you think, what's, what's the best practices that you deploy now to keep that team really engaged in and moving forward and supporting the brand, but also engaging customers and consumers? Yeah. I mean, I think the most important thing um, for the teams is for, well, it's, it's an obvious one, but just making sure that everyone's on the same page in terms of what the heck you're trying to do. You know, so what is the objective and, um, and, and why, and, and really importantly, why you're trying to, why you're trying to do it. So I think that if teams that have, that understand that, what you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it, and then can then clearly see how their part in the role of that hooks on to that bigger picture, um, is, is, is how, in my mind, you inspire and, um, retain folks and free them up to make better decisions because sometimes, if somebody just has a really narrow idea of what it is they're supposed to do, and you've only just explained to them, this is what I want you to do with no context, when they run into an obstacle, they can't make a better decision about what might make more sense because they don't have that full context. So I think that's really important is um, that teams um, have that. Um, again, I think it's really important that teams connect always back in the consumer. We do these things called empathy encounters where we're always trying to make sure that our group is encountering folks who we're trying to talk to, whether that be donors or whether that be prospective students or parents or graduate students, just to make sure that you're walking in somebody else's shoes um, and you have empathy for what they're trying to do. And then you think about what you can do to make their jobs a little bit easier. So I think that teams that understand that are also um, in a better spot than teams that don't. And lastly, as we look at it with the rapidly changing nature of technology and just all of the different levers available, I think this external thinking and making sure that you're bringing external expertise 
becomes really important and that you just get honest about the things that you can do internally and the things that you're going to need to hire because you think that somebody externally is moving faster and is staying more ahead of the curve and then you can um, have them help you do that. I think that teams um, that don't ever get that external um, expertise, it's, it's, it's harder. Well, yeah, for sure. Uh, Kim, when you came, I remember when you came to St. Thomas and, and pretty massive overhaul of the whole marketing department. Um, and yeah. to a team that is highly regarded and respected across the university. Just a question for you on that. Uh, how, do you, how did you find and, and how do you keep that, that talent that, for, of people that get digital and get the power of a brand? Uh, you really turned yeah. that upside down in a great way. Yeah, we did. And I think part of that, again, kind of goes back to that vision of what it is that we're trying to do. You know, I was right. actually just talking to our creative director the other day, this fantastic um, genius, Pete Winicky, who oh, yeah. came from the oh, yeah. local market here and asking him, like, what keeps you at St. Thomas? So, you know, like uh, we, um, a lot of us have experienced pay reductions recently because of like all of the COVID extra impact that we're having to, um, you know, the university is, is, is needing to cover. And so just really thinking about the value proposition of working at St. Thomas, what is that like? And I was saying to him, you know, what keeps you the notion of being able to like work on a brand and transform the brand yep. with the freedom that St. Thomas has given us within limits, you know, obviously yep. we're not going to recommend that the St. Thomas color change from purple <laughs> to red or right. something like that. Right. But the opportunity to really work on something um, and then to be able to have impact in it without it having to have a million rounds of approval, super, super important. To him. Yep. And that's how I think we retain talent is or even attract talent. The opportunity is to build and to do this. And because we're working in higher ed, the product that we're working with is one that's transformative to people's lives. Yeah. Um, and people very much get behind the mission of what St. Thomas is trying to do, as well as how we do it. And it enables us to attract people into our job um, that are really highly qualified and that are bringing in great um, expertise. Kim, uh, just to jump on the, the whole COVID thing, you know, with, there's been a huge shift, obviously. Uh, in online learning to deliver higher, higher education. Um, what about marketing of higher education? Has, has that shifted online as well to the same degree? Or are these two things completely unrelated in terms of teaching online versus marketing the, the teaching uh, online? You know, in my mind, I think they're unrelated, but I think they are both experiencing a shift, but I don't, mm -hmm. think, I don't think it's causal. Right. Like if you think about moving online and teaching online. And this was this stat is a pre-COVID stat, but I sure. thought it was really interesting. The majority of online course takers um, would take classes at an institution online, fully online, that's within a hundred miles of where they lived. Which I thought was really interesting because if you think about online, you're like, wow, you can go anywhere. Yeah, you can don't... take a course over in France or India. Right. Like why right. would you stick within a hundred miles? But I think that actually has goes to the power of the brand, totally, right? Like, totally. you know, it, it's yep. a brand that you know, it's yep. a quality that you know. And I think that even digital initially got, um, there was a thought, digital online, that is, that it was lower quality. Um, and I so I think that COVID is going to be really interesting with that because now that it's forced um, people to just get up a learning curve and to be better quality with that, maybe that will create a different way of thinking about it. I still think that there is an absolute place for in-person um, totally education, yep. particularly on the undergrad side. So, yep. um, you know, we're, we're forming humans here between the ages of 18 and 22. And there's a lot more things that happen to do that than just what takes place inside a classroom. But yep. on the marketing side, it's hard to know kind of what's happening in the higher ed space because 
you know, it's not like ad age covers, you know, what's happening <laughs> in higher ed. So I can't right. just go and Not read yet, Kim. They're gonna, you're going to get in there. I know they are. True. <laughs> I, I can't go ahead and read what's happening. So it's harder to know, um, you know, kind of about that. But I mean, I definitely think, well, from our own experience sure. and from just what, you know, as I go onto other people's websites, then the ads that I get pushed because I've been on their websites, I know that, right. I know that other people are thinking about it. But it's interesting in higher ed too, because sometimes there is a, dual audience to what we do. Like if you think about what we call the view book. So the view book is that paper magazine that a lot of people, you know, if mm-hmm. you've got uh, somebody who's looking at colleges, you're probably inundated with them in the mail. And you could say, you could think, why the heck are they spending all this money on paper? And part of the answer to that is because you send it to the kid, but the parent is going to see it. And it's a dual, um, it's dually consumed, you know, kind of like in the home. Whereas if I send digital messages to just the child, oh, the yeah. parent might not get it. And again, the parent is a huge influencer in helping, you know, to shape this decision for the child. So it is kind of interesting to think about, um, you know, how might the role of the view book, how, how might that evolve over time? And you could argue maybe some would say it's not effective because that avalanche of paper, people you know, sustainability, all sorts of reasons why people might not want that. But those have been some historical reasons why we've stuck a little bit more kind of like in the paper mm-hmm. world. But yeah. I think yeah. it's, I mean, again, the ability to customize, the ability to get to write who you want to talk to and track it is just getting better and better. Totally. Excellent. All right. Well, Kim, we're going to do a little pivot here. We're going to our, our very interesting and fun part of our show that we called Rapid Fire. <laughs> So, Gino and I will ask you rapid fire questions. You give us rapid fire answers, and we'll go from there, okay? Okay. All right, somebody start the clock. All right, I've got your first question, Kim. If you weren't doing what you do today, what would you be? I would want to be an ambassador to a country in Latin America. Nice, nice. Okay, I think this is an easy one uh, Mac or PC? PC. I can't oh. deal with the Mac. Oh. <laughs> I just don't know how to do it. That's so okay. Person. Admitting it is the first step to recovery. Oh, there we go. Says, <laughs> yeah. the, says yeah. the Mac guy. What three words do you use to describe yourself? I would say optimistic, resilient, and determined. Nice. Yes, those are good. So who's your idol or who do you look up to the most? Um, if I'm thinking about celebrities, I'm going to go with Michelle Obama. I think she is so amazing. I loved her book, Becoming, and every time I see her doing anything, I think it's uh, <laughs> it's like I would like to have that level of grace. Lovely. And the next one is, what is your most interesting, maybe hidden, talent? <laughs> I don't know if it's interesting, but I played the piano a lot in competitions when I was little. So people, a lot of people don't know me today know that I can do that. And I used to actually write music. And the music I... I composed music for piano and flute um, that used to win competitions. Wow, <laughs> so that, that was back in high school, so a long time ago. But a lot of people don't know that about me. There you go. So the in the key of D as our podcast title makes a lot of yes. sense to you. Yeah, yes, I <laughs> totally get that. There you go. Um, okay, and the last question to end on a musical theme: Who is your favorite band or artist to see live in concert? Oh, hands down, that's got to be Pink. She is amazing. Ah. So I love her what she does, and I love her songs and. I love that she's all about girl power. There you go. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Excellent. Kim. There you have it. That is rapid. There's our horn rapid fire with Kim. 
unfortunately, you don't win anything for participating in our game, but we loved it and got to know you a little better, and we really appreciate it. Yeah. Okay, so, Kim, we're going to we're gonna wrap things up here um, with a, just a couple questions for you. One, mine is the first one. That, um, so how do you stay current on all things digital? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing as I use my kids. Um, mm-hmm. My daughter said to me probably three years ago, she said, you know, Facebook is um, Instagram for old people and has <laughs> never wanted a Facebook account. So right there, I was like, hmm. hmm. So if you, listen, you know, watching what my children are doing and what my children are consuming is one of the ways um, I try and read and watch. Have you guys seen The Social Dilemma, the documentary that came out about social media? Because it was mind blowing. Mm-hmm. So I try and like watch things like that. Um, uh, I try and use, uh, read things that are happening on Medium or LinkedIn or using digital myself. I have a, I have a TikTok account and I have a Snapchat account and I try and uh, very clunkily um, use them. But I just try to walk in the, you know, yep. the shoes of the consumer. Very good. I love it. And then uh, we're going to have you look into your crystal ball for us. So what's the next big thing that our listeners and Gino and I should be looking out for in terms of digital or marketing in general? You know, I have to say I'm fascinated by the post-COVID world and what this push up the technology curve in terms of the learning curve is going to do and the opportunities that it is going to unlock. We used to talk all the time at General Mills about you know, if you can catch a consumer in a transition, then you can introduce a new behavior. And it's mm. really hard to introduce a new behavior. But when you do, that new behavior often unlocks opportunities for new products, um, things that the person wouldn't have been um, open to before. And I feel like that's what this um, technology learning curve is doing. It, it, it's forcing a new behavior. We've all gone through it at the same time. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see on the other side of this, because now people have all these new skills, what will be invented as new ways of reaching out, delivering consumers, delivering products, all of those kinds of things. I I think that's going to be really fun for us to experiment with and to watch what others do. And for our listeners who would want to learn more, connect with you, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? I am um, LinkedIn. I mean, I am uh, pretty active on LinkedIn and there's contact information there or, you know, my uh, St. Thomas email is, uh, is kim.martinez at stthomas.edu. Great. Okay. And we'll include uh, your contact information and other things you reference in our show notes to make it easier for listeners to access it. But thank you. Great. I just knew this was going to be oh. phenomenal. Just thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm a big fan of you guys, so thank you. Thanks so much for your time today, Kim. Thank you. Well, Gino, what an amazing time that we had with Kim. I mean, I have pages and pages of notes, but... Uh, as we get into it, what was kind of one of your top takeaways? Well, I, first of all, what a what an amazing career uh, she's done it all. And I think when you when you get to look at digital through the lens of someone who's had that kind of a career, you start to see, um, you know, my question about when when did digital start kicking in? And she started mentioning things that were, you know, first generation digital, like that the notion of getting coupons based on the uh, the products that you buy or are interested in. I mean, that's that's first generation retargeting, right? Didn't call it digital, but yes. that's what it was, right? And that's what grocery stores relied on. Um, also, I liked how she talked about, um, we always think about social driving viral. Yeah. And she turned around and said, no, the need for viral drives social. So the channel is the enabler of the, of the behavior you're trying to drive. Yeah. I was amazed at her examples with how much digital really did play during her time at General Mills with packaged goods. Because I always right. pinched hold them as such a traditional, right. big budget 
TV, traditional TV broadcast advertiser. Right. And I, I wrote that down to the, that the Catalina couponing, which right. we used in, yeah. I know we used at Caribou Coffee when I was there, yeah. really is kind of that, that first retargeting. And totally. so- Different yep. form, maybe, maybe more sophisticated now, but... Right. And I was also surprised at that 70-20-10 thing, that 70% of the effort is done through the tried and true channels and 20 is more the emerging and then yeah. 10% purely experimental. I would not have thought of a brand like General Mills as playing that much in this emerging and experimental. Well, she referenced, and I wrote that too, yep. you know, tried and true, yep. up and coming, experimental. Yep. And her line was, and if you're not constantly experimenting, you will get left behind, but it's difficult. When right. you're running running a PNL like she did and right. trying to trying to deliver, but I love that you know particularly now if you don't play a little bit in that experimental right. space, right. Uh, you're going to get passed for right. sure. Well, I remember my days at Super Value when when the big marketing machine was coupons and, and uh, they were all distributed through newspapers. And I remember the Wall Street Journal article that said 50% of newspapers are going out of business. Yeah. So we just lost 50% of our reach of the number one marketing tool we have, which is the coupon. So what do we do? And, I, you know, so it was, it just led perfectly into a need for a digital strategy and a digital transformation yeah. um, that hits every industry, regardless uh, of whatever has worked for you in the past. I wrote down a little bit of the dates associated with her, her products mm -hmm. and brands that she, she uh, ran at General Mills. You know, it was 2000, I think she referenced Cheerios and kind of, she said, website had come into play. Right. So yeah. Yeah, that wasn't that long ago, but mm -hmm. long enough within right. that for such a popular brand like Cheerios. Then it was 2010. She referenced that the social channels were coming into play and gave us an example of the fruit roll-ups yeah. and how do you leverage that. Right. But and the key takeaway then for all of us, it does evolve, but it's also kind of sometimes different channels for different brands or different parts of your business. Sure. Don't assume it's a one-size-fits-all. Yep. Uh, as was evidence, they really tailored it to the different products or brands that they were developing. Well, and that leads to her whole comment about the brand or the people that use the brand, not the yes. brand itself. And, and so you got to use the channels that the people that use your brand are, are interested in, as opposed to just coming up with channels by brand. Yes. Um, and she really eloquently just kind of mapped that out. I'm like, you know, you're right. It's like, <laughs> She's uh, right on a lot of things. Well, yeah, for I, sure. It wasn't, she was referencing her team at at St. Thomas yeah. now, but it ties into that really understanding the consumer. Yeah. Sometimes there's more than one consumer. Right. And, and she talked about the need for those traditional, like the view books. Yes. And she said, you know, we use, we use a traditional method because we want that piece that's in the house that the student sees or the prospective student sees yeah. and the parents see. If we did an email to the parents, the students wouldn't see it. If we did an email to the yeah. student, the parent wouldn't see it likely. So, I mean, the cool thing about digital is you can really target a message by audience, but you rarely get that ability to to share a message across multiple audiences at the same time. Yeah. So I hadn't really thought of it that way at all. Uh, another note I had was the balance of, um, maybe rules are too hard here, but the, the, gar the guardrails yes. and the principles with freedom. And, and then she brought a bunch of people in from agency world. So like, could have played it safe, could have, could have gone with people that had been in yeah. the business forever, brought all these new people, but, but, but also put them in the guardrails, and, but let them have full expression within them Yes. Okay, which I think is the perfect balance, right? Yeah. Right now, where so many of us are leading teams that everybody's working remote. Right. So this idea of being crystal clear on those guardrails, because <laughs> you're not side by side anymore. Right. You are digitally, but not in person. And then that idea of trust. Right. You know, you got to hire the right people and you got to trust them to do. Right. So the guardrails plus trust is so important right, right. now. Uh, and she also referenced the explain why you're doing something. Right. And then allow or enable your people to make their own decisions. Right. Because otherwise, they're going to hit an obstacle, and they're not going to know how to get around it. Yep. So 
you teach them that, give them the guardrails, and then they can move because you have to move so fast right now. And you got to empower your people so that they can deliver the messages you want them to. It's, it's amazing, Kathy, when I teach mostly seniors and I, I ask them in class, how many people have internships? About half raise their hand. And then I say, how many of you are doing social media? And most of them raise their hand. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Um, but how do you know what to post on behalf of your client? And they're like, well, good question. Can you help me with that? I'm like, I can't help you with that. I got to know <laughs> what your brand stands for. And I, I need to know the, bra- the, the, the guardrails. Yeah. And they don't know the guardrails. So they just make stuff up and post it because to get you know, three posts a week, they got to get it done. And, and a lot of them don't, don't know what those rules of engagement are. And the scary part, it's like having a press release that you let an intern write that no one proofreads. Yeah. I mean, that's the power of social media is anybody could post on your behalf if you give them access, right? Or you ask them to do it for you. The problem is, is anybody can post on your behalf. Well, and I love because I said, you know, digital is fine because even if you have something that doesn't work or like right. that, you can take it down right away. And remember, Kim said, yeah, the yeah, people notice. They do. So you still have to be thoughtful yep. and uh, right. be ready within that. And my favorite kind of closing line, because yep. it so sums up where we are for mine is, if you can catch a consumer in transition, you can introduce new behaviors. Ooh. I can't remember. I think it maybe yeah. came on General Mills. How appropriate now? Because we're everybody, all of us as consumers, all of us as business leaders, our listeners, we're all in this evolution and we're in a huge transition, whether we like it or not, on many mm-hmm. different fronts. But what an opportunity for all of us as business leaders and marketers, because now people have learned to do things in a new way. Right. So now we can introduce new behaviors. And I just, what a, yeah. what a compelling thought particularly right now. And I think that's the key to what Kim shared with us is somebody who's had a career like that in so many different industries and has learned all the best practices and knows the value of relationships and trusting your people and, you know, and believing in a brand. I mean, she had, it's the full package and, it, and that's what you see manifested in, in the work that she and her team are doing at St. Thomas. Yeah. 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 I led with what, as a, she was an amazing executive <laughs> and CMO and, and I'll just say that yeah. St. Thomas is lucky to have her. And she is what we thought she was going to be. So. Oh, great. Oh, well, so, so many things. Gino, as always, just a great episode and so much fun to be on this journey with you. It is a pleasure to be doing this with you, Kathy. Now for the encore, hold your applause, please. We can't leave without thanking the rest of our band who helped make this podcast really sing. Keeping us in the right key is rock and roll producer, musical polyglot, and recording wizard Tom Forletti. All right, it's Forletti, but whatever. Helping us harmonize the web and digital elements is our content and marketing troubadour, Seth Conover. Our podcast coordinating conductor is Christina Sagar. Our theme song is written and performed by Marco Giovanelli, which is played, unsurprisingly, in the key of D. And last but not least, thanks to my partner in crime, who's been helping me stay on beat business-wise for more than 20 years, Gino Giovanelli. I'm Kathy Hollenhorst. Thanks for listening. <laughs>